Our sermon text today is Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18, the final passage in the book of Galatians as we've been marching through this epistle of Paul's, uh, finally now reaching the end. Before we turn to the word of God here and see what God has to say for us, let's ask his blessing upon us. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you've spoken. You have not remained silent and, and left us to wonder who you are and what your will is, how you have acted in history and how you will act going forward, but rather you have told us in your word so that we might know you. And so we pray that during this time that, that we might learn better who you are, not just in our minds, but in our hearts as well. If we are to do this, Lord, it, it needs to be because of your work. And so we come before you now and ask that you would work mightily, not because we have a, a great preacher, for we do not, not because we are great Christians, because we are not, but because you are a great God. Speak to us now, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now, our sermon text, Galatians 6, verses 11 to 18. This is the inspired word of God. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and for practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we've come to the conclusion, the conclusion of the book of Galatians, and as such, the conclusion of our sermon series. And, and as you probably know, if you've ever written a letter, there are certain conventions that go with the conclusion of a letter. Normally, if we were to write a letter, we would write something at the very end like, 
sincerely, Pete Scribner. Or, or yours affectionately, Pete Scribner. Or, or something like that. And Paul follows the conventions of his day in much the same way, but his, his signing off, as it were, is, is not quite so brief as ours would be. We see it begin in verse 11 where he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now when he speaks here of these large letters, some have supposed that perhaps what he is referring to is the fact that he has poor eyesight and has to write with large letters or, or perhaps he has a, a sore hand and, and maybe arthritis or something like that, so he can't write in little letters that would be legible and must write in larger letters. That, these could be true, who knows? But, but what is likely occurring is at the very least this. He is underscoring the emphasis that he is placing on the points that he is closing with, as well as trying to demonstrate the the genuineness with which he is communicating them. These are not just empty thoughts that it has. It would become his usual practice. You'll recall that Galatians is likely the first of his epistles that he's written, but it would become his practice to sign off in similar ways where he would, at the end of the letter, though he is using a, an, a, he's used an amanuensis or a, a secretary to write as he's transcribed as he's or as he's dictated to the to the person um, throughout the course of his letters he usually takes up the pen at the end and writes his closing greeting himself to sign the letter as it were and as he does so in this letter bringing a, a summary of all that he has said he offers a word of correction a word of reminder and a word of encouragement. First of all, the word of correction. And this is where we're going to spend the grand bulk of our time here this morning is in this word of correction. And it makes sense because we consider the reason for the epistle itself. Why is it that he is writing? Remember, it is to the church in Galatia that has got a problem. They've had uh, these Judaizers who have come in and who have said to them that the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone is not enough. They have said that you need that gospel, that gospel of the cross, plus something else. Namely, that you need to become a Jew and follow the, the ceremonial laws of Judaism as, as symbolized through the practice of circumcision. And so we see that he says in verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Now we need to realize when he speaks of forcing them to be circumcised that circumcision in and of itself is not the problem. Paul himself was circumcised. He would later actually encourage Timothy to be circumcised in another context. The problem comes in thinking that it was necessary in order to obtain the salvation that God offers to us. 
the thought that somehow the cross itself wasn't enough, but the cross plus circumcision was needed. Now, we aren't likely to fall into the same trap of thinking that that is the thing that we need to do in order to be saved, but I think there is a danger for Christians in a modern age to think of other things, and oftentimes I think we do think of other things as being necessary in addition to the sacrifice that Jesus made. We think that in order to be saved, what we need to do is is have the death of Christ on the cross plus our church attendance or plus our church giving, or plus our Bible reading, or plus our good deeds, or plus some other thing. That is how we think sometimes. We think it is Jesus plus that saves us. We need to realize that it is Jesus alone who saves us. All those things I mentioned are good things. They are wonderful things. They're good things for us to practice, and we hope that that as we have a true and living faith, that these things will be the fruit of that faith. And yet we need to realize that they are not the things that bring about our salvation, but rather are the outworking of our salvation, which God has wrought in us. Right? Well, true religion results in works, true religion is always based on grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says that he wanted, he says, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, the Judaizers were claiming that a works-based righteousness was the way to go. A, a legalistic view that said you had to do A, B, C, and D in order to be declared righteous before God. But, but God says to us in his word time and time and time again that in order to be declared righteous before him, the only way is to be clothed in the righteousness of the perfectly righteous Son of God, Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, our own efforts to be righteous will always fall short. We know this if we pay any attention to ourselves, don't we? We know that no matter how hard we try to be good, no matter how hard we work at doing the right thing, time and time and time again, we slip and fall and trip up. We use words like that, don't we? We slipped up. We tripped up. No, you sinned. You rebelled against God, and so did I. And we do it time and time and time again. But God has offered us grace. He has offered us grace in Christ Jesus because he cares for us. He loves us. That's something that couldn't be said about the Judaizers. They weren't really after the well-being of the Galatians, right? Paul talks of their motivation here in verse 12. He says they want to make a good showing in the flesh. That's what they're looking to do. And I think there's kind of a double meaning here when he says they want to make a good showing in the flesh. On the one hand, he's talking about how the, the physical, fleshly mark of circumcision is, is kind of their, their picture of their, of their showing, of what they've done, of what they've accomplished. They, they can show, they can demonstrate in the flesh 
that they've won you over to themselves, that you follow them instead of following the gospel. Secondly, there's a sense in which they want to make a good showing as opposed to actually being good, right? It, did you catch that? It says they want to make a good showing, but, but that shouldn't be what we're worried about. We shouldn't be worried about making a good showing. We shouldn't be worried about making people think that we are good. We should actually be good, right? We, we shouldn't be concerned about a facade that we put up. We should be concerned about what's inside. Sometimes, if you've ever bought a new house, right, you go, you buy a house, and and the people that lived there before fixed it up before they left so that they could sell it. But sometimes they, they didn't necessarily fix everything up to, to perfection, right? They've instead kind of, well, let's just put some paint over that and kind of cover it up. Or let's hide this somehow. Let's, let's make it look good. Even though this isn't really firm, we can, we can kind of fix it in such a way that it, it makes it look good. It makes a good showing so that somebody will want to buy this house. They do that because they're not really concerned about the well-being of the house. They're not concerned about your well-being as the homeowner. They're concerned about selling the house. That's all they're concerned about. It's a totally selfish point of view. And that's how the Judaizers were. They were concerned about the showing that they made. They were concerned about their reputation. They were concerned about their own comfort. Right? In verse 12, again, it says that, they did this only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They wanted to claim Christ, but, but if they held on to the works of the law, they could, they could not have to worry about being persecuted by the Jews, right? They could say, no, it, it's kind of a halfway thing. You know, we're, we're with you guys, and we're with you guys, and we'll be with who, whomever, almost, right? We need to realize that that's not the way Jesus has called us to be. He has called us to himself. And we must stand apart as his alone. And as we do this, we will face persecution. It will happen. Jesus says as much in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil Against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, this is going to happen. He wants to prepare us for it. Because if we are truly following Jesus, we will face persecution. The reason for that is because the gospel of the cross is offensive. Because the cross itself is Offensive. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. That word stumbling block in Greek that, that he originally wrote it in is the word scandalon. We get our word scandal from it. right? And the cross scandalizes us. The cross scandalizes us because the cross tells us that we are Sinners, We like to think of ourselves as being basically good. But the cross reminds us of what Scripture says. There is none who are good. No, not one. The cross tells us that we aren't just sinners, but we are actually enslaved to sin. 
We like to, to think of ourselves as being free to control our own destiny. But the cross reminds us that this is not the case. The cross also tells us that, that we cannot save ourselves. We like to think of ourselves as being self-sufficient, the kind of people who, who just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But the cross reminds us that we are dead in our sins and we need someone else to save us. The cross is offensive because it demands that we see who we really are. As we see in verse 13, even those who are circumcised do not keep the law. None of us do. Even those Judaizers, they were but hypocrites. Right? Like the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 23, he said that they sit in Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces and be called rabbi by others. But at the end of the day, it was all a facade they wanted the reputation. They wanted to be thought of as holy. But in reality, there was no holiness in them. They desire, verse 13 again, to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. This word boast is kind of a tricky word. It, it, it actually is far broader than the term that we use here when we talk about about it being a boast. Uh, there's really no one word in English that can kind of encompass all that it, it is meant to tell us. But John Stott puts it this way. He says that it means to, to boast in, to glory in, to rejoice in, to revel in, to live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons, engrosses our attention, and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession. And for the Judaizers, their obsession was their reputation, as evidenced by the Galatians being circumcised. Contrast that, though, with Paul. Contrast that with how Paul behaved. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now this, this is an amazing statement he is making. We, we used it earlier as our call to worship, and, and now we come back to it here in our, in our sermon. And, and I just want you to realize what an amazingly audacious thing he is saying here. It is, it is a ridiculous thing that he is saying when he speaks of boasting in the cross. It makes no sense at all. We tend to think of the cross as, as a religious symbol because that's what it has been for two millennia now. 
You know, it's, it's a symbol of our faith. It's a symbol of Christ Jesus and what he accomplished on our behalf. But, but in this day, it would not have been seen with great religious fervor and affection. The cross would have been seen for what it is. An instrument of torture and of shame. Right? Because when somebody was crucified, the suffering that they bore was terrible and bloody and gruesome and ugly and humiliating as they were left to hang there naked for all the world to behold them in their pain and agony and humiliation. That is what the cross meant in that day. And yet Paul says, I will boast only in the cross. You know, the words crucify and crucifixion were actually considered to be profane words. They, they weren't the kind of words that you would even utter in polite company. And yet Paul here says such things as in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says here in today's text, I will boast only in the cross. What does that mean? And what, more importantly, would it mean for us if we were to boast only in the cross? Well, for us to boast only in the cross, I think it means that, that we recognize that, that we have nothing worth boasting for apart from Jesus. There is no goodness in us that can make us right before God. Only the goodness that Christ gives to us. It means realizing that Christ has, through the cross, indeed given us his righteousness. He has indeed paid for our sin. He has indeed accomplished our salvation. And it is ours through him alone. But as Philip Ryken puts it, Boasting in the cross means more than simply believing that Jesus died for your sins. It also means living a crucified life. So, so if I'm going to live a crucified life, that means that though I, I seek to find common ground with others, that I might share this truth with them, I will never compromise on the truth of the gospel itself. I will never give an inch in terms of that truth. And I must be willing to be thought of as foolish by the world as a result. I must be willing to be thought a fool because I claim to be true what God tells me is true. And I care more about what God thinks than what the world thinks. And it means remembering that there are many who have gone before us willing to face persecution because they are unwilling to be silenced. But they needed to bear witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, in Hebrews we read, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter 
of our faith before the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, in the end, it means taking my cues not from the world, but from the cross. By which, Paul writes in verse 14, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Remember back in chapter 5 where Paul wrote, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires and now live by the Spirit. Crucified both in verse chapter 5 and here in chapter 6 is, is a verb that's in what's called the perfect tense. And, and the perfect tense is, is a tense that, that communicates a past event with a present effect. Right? And that's what the cross is. It's a past event, one that actually took place, one that is real in time and space and history. But its implications, its effects, its power is brought forward in time to the present so that it impacts us, it directs all that we are and all that we do for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation, we read in verse 15. And that phrase, a new creation, is the same phrase that, that Paul uses, is it not, in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So it's not any act that saves us. It's not any change in us that saves us, but rather the fact that we have been saved changes us and causes us to live in a certain way by grace through faith by the power of his spirit we are changed but as for all paul writes in verse 16 who walk by this rule peace and mercy be upon them and upon the israel of god who is he talking about who is he talking about here when he talks about those who walk by this rule, when he talks about the Israel of God, he's talking about the church. He's talking about you and me, brothers and sisters. Remember in Romans 9, where he said, not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. He says, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. And in Galatians 3 we read, Know then it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So it is those who trust in Christ Jesus for whom Paul prays now. And he asks this blessing upon them of peace and mercy from God. For it is only through Christ Jesus that true peace and mercy can be found. And because that was the gospel upon which the church was founded in Galatia, he also offers a word of reminder. That word of reminder here 
is in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. He says, I, I don't want to hear any more nonsense about you guys chasing after other gospels, right? I've, I've reminded you now of what the gospel is. So, so don't let me receive word that you guys are, are forgetting it again. For, he goes on, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These were the, the marks which were the cost of his founding the church. In every place that he went where he would plant churches, he, he would go and he would start a church, but the reality was he faced opposition all along the way, and so he would, he would face persecution. And it would not just be like people thinking badly of him, it would be physical harm brought to him. So when he talks about the marks of Jesus, these are, are the physical scars that he endured. Paul writes in Philippians 3, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What were the, the sufferings that Paul ended up having to endure? Well, 2 Corinthians 6, he speaks about great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And later in chapter 11, he fills it out a little bit more where he speaks of far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death, five times receiving 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day at sea. Paul underwent all of these things. The scars were there on his body. Those marks were there to remind him and to remind the Galatians and to remind you and me of his willingness to suffer with Christ and the willingness that we should have as well. For those marks also were much the same as the marks of a slave branded by its owner. Paul writes, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. We belong to Christ Jesus, brother and sister. We belong to him. And so, in his gracious, gracious, gracious gift, we stand. But let us stand firm in the truth, whatever we should face. It's kind of a downer of a note as you come to the end of the letter. So Paul also offers a word of encouragement. He says in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only means by which we might be saved. Just like in verse 14, Paul had written, uh, of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, here he speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This formula, this phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember what each of those words mean. They, they just kind of roll off our tongue sometimes, I think. And we don't really think about what we're saying when we speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christ, he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, appointed by God, set apart by God, used by God for his purposes, 
promised the coming one who would come and set his people free, who would set ultimately all things to rights. This is the Messiah, the Christ. Who is this Christ? It is Jesus. It is Jesus whose name literally means Yahweh saves. He is the means by which the Lord saves his people. And yet Jesus, though fully God, is also fully man so that he might bear the sins of man. And he is our Lord. He is our Lord. That means he determines how we live, who we are, and what we do. So may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Not just with your appearance, not just with your your outward appearance, not just as a, a banner or as a mascot of some kind, but may the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And it's interesting, as we close now, he adds two words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. If you flip over to Philippians, just a couple pages probably to the right in your Bible, you know, 10, 15 pages maybe, you'll find that the end of Philippians is very similar to the end of Galatians. In fact, the final verse is the exact same. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. But Paul ends right there. He doesn't add these two other words that he adds in Galatians, which is odd. Why is this? Well, perhaps it's because the Philippians of whom Paul speaks so highly, of whom Paul speaks so lovingly, saying that they are such a source of joy for him, did not need the same level of encouragement that the Galatians did, right? Because they hadn't failed as badly as the Galatians did. They hadn't, hadn't stumbled off after some other gospel like the Galatians had So maybe Paul knew that they needed this extra reminder. They needed to be reminded that even though they had stumbled, even though they had wandered, even though they had tried to accomplish their own salvation, that even now as they trust in Christ Jesus alone, that they are beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. He adds an amen to say this is most certainly true. They're beloved by Paul, and even more importantly, beloved by God. Perhaps today you need that reassurance as well. Perhaps you have stumbled. Perhaps you have wandered away. Perhaps you've tried so unsuccessfully to achieve your own salvation. It matters not who you are or where you've been, what you've done or thought. Jesus stands ready for you now. And if you will trust in him alone, regardless of what your backstory is, your story for the future is changed. For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. 
The old is gone, the new has come. And that's why in a moment here we will sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. It's not that we no longer do things or we've never done anything or don't continue to do things that, that are bad or wrong or sinful. Of course we have and of course we will. But the guilt has been removed. Not just the guilty feeling, but the guilty verdict that stood against us. And so we might walk in freedom now, knowing that we are holy in God's eyes, and that's why we have no fear in death. For we know ourselves as being beloved in Christ Jesus. We live in a fallen and broken world filled not only with sin, but with evils like like cancer and, and coronavirus. And yes, they may do harm to us. They may cause us to become ill. They may even take our very lives. But if we are in Christ Jesus, we need have no fear in death. Be encouraged. Trust in Christ Jesus and his grace will be with you. If he is your older brother, then we, though separated from one another here today, physically, are joined together by his spirit as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we rejoice with each other. This identity is ours through nothing we have done, through nothing we could have done. But because it is ours through nothing we have done, we can have the confidence that there's nothing we can do to lose it. Because it is Christ Jesus who holds us in the palm of his hands. What a wonderful blessing that is. I mentioned in, a couple weeks ago the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. We've printed it in your order of worship. If you would look at it with me, I just want to conclude my sermon with reading this question and answer. I will read the question and whether you're here or whether you're watching online today, if you have that, please answer along. But even more than reading this answer out loud, it is my prayer and my hope that these words will echo in your heart, being true to you. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Our Lord, we thank you that you are our hope, that you are our comfort. 
thank you that you offer us your grace, your mercy, and your peace. We receive it today in Jesus' name. Amen.